we're being joined right now by a lifelong resident of Harbor Gateway in the city of Los Angeles. His parents immigrated to the U.S. from Nigeria. His mom works as a nurse, his dad a cab driver, but he ran for city council. And first Gen Z person to make a successful, well, successful in the sense that he came within striking distance of uh, being elected to the city council as someone who had never held elected office and was uh, a Gen Z member. He served as a board member of Harbor Gateway South Neighborhood Council and is a member of the teachers union as he has worked as a teacher. Bryant Odega, good morning. Good morning, Dominique, and good morning, KBLA family. It is such a pleasure and joy to be back with you. Yeah, it's great to have you back. I know you went off to Harvard, and that is why <laughs> we haven't heard from you. So that's a good excuse for not being around. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's been um, quite a transition away from you know, home. Um, it's a lot colder out here. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm learning a lot. And as you may know, there's a lot. It's also been going on on Harvard's uh, campus, just like in college campuses all across uh, the country. Yeah, especially Harvard's campus, though. I know that yeah. uh, the university has banned several student groups, including one prominent Jewish student group, for protesting in support of Palestinians. Yeah, Columbia University, um, they banned um, like several groups, and... They've, there's been a series of, of halting of like teachings uh, where groups in Colombia, they've been inviting legal experts and humanitarian rights uh, scholars to speak on the crisis. But uh, those events have been halted and we're seeing similar efforts of suppression um, at Harvard as well, where, um, you know, last week there was a group of, or two weeks ago, there was a group of Jewish uh, students who staged a sit-in in one of the school buildings and right now are facing ad boarding. So basically facing um, extreme academic uh, discipline. And it's really concerning, especially since what we're all trying to do, which is raise uh, awareness on the humanitarian catastrophe, the uh, you know genocidal campaign um, of uh, that's being inflicted upon the people in Gaza, but also the West Bank, and calling for a permanent ceasefire. And these calls are being met with the most extreme levels of repression. Um, and it's really disheartening to witness this myself. Yeah. And you've been out there protesting nevertheless. <laughs> sure have. <laughs> I see you on um, social media. <laughs> yes. And, you know, what gives me hope is even despite... You know, what if, honestly, it feels like a new, uh, like the McCarthyism that I would read in the books, like, and seeing that in action uh, in 2023 um, from uh, censoring uh, teachers and what can be taught. Because in California, there's been efforts to censor and suppress the teaching of Palestine, especially within um, ethnic studies classrooms. Um, and we're seeing, uh, like, the U.S. Senate, right, they passed a resolution condemning college students for having the audacity to exercise their First Amendment rights. Um, but despite that, over 300,000 people, and I was one of them, 
showed up at the nation's capital calling for a ceasefire, seeing people from different ages, different uh, walks of life, cultural backgrounds, all in community, marching, shutting down um, the political capital of this country to uh, really put this president on notice that the people, and it's backed by uh, polling data, that the people support a ceasefire and we are not, um, you know, in condoning or in, the, or in support of this enabling of what Netanyahu is doing. And so the people, so the movement is strong, it's growing. Uh, young people are already at the forefront. Um, you know, students just yesterday in Boston and other parts of the country staging walkouts as part of a national student walkout. It is really amazing to see all of this in action in person. Yeah, it's it's quite stunning. I mean, I think the fact that you would condemn students for protesting. Students have been protesting since we've had students. And <laughs> yes. the shutdown of student organizations, the characterizing of any support of Palestine as being uh, pro-Hamas, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's terrible. I saw, I even saw um, a clip of Bill Maher saying that everyone who supports Palestinian civilians is pro-Hamas. And I found that wow. stunning from someone who is a progressive. That's not, or a supposed progressive. That's not what, right. that's not what it's about at all. I don't know how you can watch the disaster that's going on, the killing of people, uh, children, women, elders, regular civilians, and just say, if I don't support that, that means I support Hamas. I, there's no logic to that. Right, there isn't. And that's why, you know, as a teacher, you know, it's really important for us to, um, to introduce you know, our students to, to knowledge, not to tell students what, what to think or how to think, but to present them with information and engage in uh, inquiry, right? When the president says, or, when, or let's we can even use those type of statements from folks like Bill Maher, right? You know, when they say if you support Palestinians um, and that being equated to pro-Hamas, like, is that really true? Right. You know, Critical thinking is what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. You know, being critical thinkers, you know, in terms of, you know, if, if supporting a ceasefire is anti-Semitic, let's define what a ceasefire is. Let's look at the United Nations. Let's look at the laws and analyze. Let's look at what um, anti-Semitism means and look at actual cases of it because it is on the rise. But who is actually propelling it? Is it the Jewish people who, and just like many others, who are calling for an end to violence? Or is it the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists? Yeah, so, great questions. Yeah, we got hold that thought, you know, uh, Brian Todega. We'll, we're going to continue the conversation. We forgot to even find out what you're studying over there at Harvard. Got a lot to talk about on the local, national, international scene, and you're welcome to join. As always, we are KBLA Talk 1580. Say the quiet part out loud. KBLA Talk 1580. Pfizer. Find a righteous range, and don't be afraid to say what you see. For KBLA Talk 1580. And we're talking with activists and 
Harvard student, Bryant Odega. What are you there studying anyway? Bryant, you there? I'm currently. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Can you hear, can you hear me okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, splendid. Um, so at Harvard, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, I am pursuing a master's in education in teaching and teacher leadership um, within the history and social science cohort. And so I'm really looking at um, uh, really teaching methods and teacher education. And um, I'm placed at a school site here in Boston, um, in the Hyde Park area, actually, the historically black neighborhood of Hyde Park in Roxbury, um, uh, studying, uh, that's doing a pilot program on ethnic studies. And so my plan is, to, when I get back to Los Angeles, I want to teach um, either ethnic studies or, or even specifically uh, black studies um, at the high school level. Um, and I'm studying under um, someone who's like a mentor to me, my North Star, uh, Dr. Christina V. Uh, Villarreal, a.k.a. Dr. V, who's from the Bay Area, and um, the birth, which is the birthplace of, of a long litany of uh, revolutionary movements such as the Black Panthers Party, but also the ethnic studies movement, which wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for the legacy of the Black Panthers and Black studies. And being able to study under her, one of the leading experts on ethnic studies in the nation, to see how we can teach students in a way that is empowering, in a way that um, that decolonizes uh, what is really a a white supremacist entrenched education system and empower our youth to uh, to seek self-determination and to freedom dream and to be freedom dream uh, uh, doers as well. So it's been a really powerful uh, and incredible experience learning out here. Yeah, I'm sure your students miss you. Certainly we miss you, but it sounds like you're leveling up for the next phase of your career and for a really important mission, which is getting real ethnic studies and advanced placement ethnic studies into our high schools. Yes, yeah, that is definitely um, part of my mission. And even after this program, I'm even considering um, in Los Angeles, especially uh, perhaps at Cal State LA in pursuing a second master's, um, but in Pan-African studies, because I really also want to further my own knowledge and expertise in this area. Um, because, yeah, you know, uh, in LUSD, a couple of years ago, we were ahead of the state of California in um, uh, making access studies as part of not just constants, but also um, a class and making a requirement um, for students, you know, for them to graduate. And, and that also opened um, a huge, I'd say, like gap or vacuum because not too many teachers have been, um, and there's just a lot more training that needs to be done around teaching ethnic studies because we don't want folks to teach it, um, like to teach content solely, but maintain the same practices, but really to tap in into uh, ethnic studies as a pedagogy as well. How do we teach students, you know, in a humanizing way, in a way that respects and affirms our students' identity, that respect the communities they come from, and the expertise that our youth have themselves from their parents, from their communities, intergenerationally. And so that is part of my mission when I get back to LA is to continue that fight for ethnic studies. And I'm also, you know, in, in addition to Dr. V, I'm also inspired as well by the work of 
you know, Black Studies at the Study of Scholars like um, Dr. Abdullah, who has also paved a way for someone like me to be able to be in this space. And so I'm really excited to uh, to continue uh, and to contribute to that legacy of uh, liberated ethnic studies in California. Yeah, there's no doubt it makes a difference. Me, myself, I took so many classes in ethnic studies as part of my course of study at San Francisco State. At the time, it was the only full school of ethnic studies in the entire country. Like the first one. But the, and the first, yeah. And the teachers that I had at, access to, the teaching that I benefited from, people like Dr. Ray Rich, Richardson, Dr. Angela mm. Davis, and others, mm. definitely helped shape <laughs> my outlook on the world forever. Not because they indoctrinated me, but because they actually gave me those critical thinking skills and right. the knowledge to go with it. We're talking with Brian Odego. We'll continue the conversation. You are, as always, invited in on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA Talk 1580 is an intervention. When we come we forward, come forward. includes you. KBLA Talk 1580, turning pain into power. 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 We're not for everybody, but we're for everybody. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. And Brian Odega is my guest. He's staying with me into the next hour, which is a great thing. I wanted to get your take. There's a cover story in the Los Angeles Times today about California's teen suicide rate. Of course, we're about to go into news, traffic, and sports, so... We'll address this on the other side because it's also a national crisis. But here in California, we've seen the average age of students who are taking their own lives fall to 16 years old. And the other scary thing is that more children are taking their own lives during the school year. Those numbers fall in the summer months. And that, to me means this is something that has to be addressed by our school system. And, you know, I love teachers. I know we all are grateful to many teachers, but I really feel like there is some grave flaws in our education system, the way it is being uh, handled, the way young people are being treated that is putting them at risk. There's tons of other theories. There's the internet. They're saying that stricter rules on getting antidepressants, all these other reasons. But if you have a seasonal suicide spike that goes up during the school year, the schools have got to look at what their role is in this. We'll address that when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA Talk 1580, talking with Bryant Odega and you. 809-201580. We're talking Black Xmas later in the show, and we will be speaking with Congresswoman Maxine Waters. A lot going on around here today. Brian, I brought up this issue of suicide among young people. Not to point fingers, but I feel like it's really time for us to have some system-wide soul-searching. The role of the schools, the role of our hospitals, our medical system, of course, the parents. And I think it's so easy and convenient to just blame it on Instagram, blame it on 
um, drug use or peer pressure. And I'm sure all of these things play a role. But as we look at the model of schools, which is what I'll ask you about because you've taught kids in LAUSD, what should change? What needs to be in place that's not there? Yes, thank you for that question, Dominique. It is really uh, tragic to, you know, to see the growth of um, uh, the deaths, you know, the suicide rates of young people. Um, and what's really concerning is seeing how um, a lot of these deaths are occurring during the academic year. Um, and so yeah. there's definitely, um, so of course, you know, social media, you know, it is a problem. Like, yeah, I know even for me, myself, um, I try to take bricks from it because it could get toxic. Cyberbullying, all of these things are all real. You know, mm-hmm. so of course, you know, parents can also um, do something. But, you know, as a school community, um, I think there's a lot more that we can do to protect uh, and keep safe our children. Uh, one of the issues that we are seeing is um, a withering of the care system. I believe um, the LA Times article wrote a bit about that. And, you know, with UTLA, the Teachers Union Los Angeles, you know, we've been advocating for um, the Beyond Recovery uh, platform, which as one of its major components includes vast investments in mental health supports. Um, and that includes hiring more staff. You know, the district, which sits on a multi-billion dollar uh, budget, you know, we have the means, especially if we still even have um, COVID money, right? $18 billion, you know, altogether. We have the means to um, invest in a care system within our education system here in Los Angeles. But we need... Um, a superintendent. We need folks who are in power, who have control over these things, to um, to use it, uh, to invest it. And that's what we've been advocating for within UTLA, also within BSAP, uh, the Black Student uh, Achievement Plan. You know, because we, we also see that uh, the suicide rates for Black youth are also increasing, and the mental health issues of de- from depression to anxiety has also been increasingly. Uh, worsening, especially uh, not just before the pandemic, but especially after. And so part of our BSAP uh, program also includes mental health supports for our youth. We're also seeing increased rates for Asian youth as well. And so this is definitely uh, a racial justice issue, just as much as it is, as it is an education uh, and youth justice issue. Um, and so part of it is the, the district using the money that it has to invest and mental health support, hiring more staff. And then as teachers and educators, I think there's, you know, of course, there's always more things that we can also do, you know, destigmatizing mental health. I know in certain communities, I know where I come from, mental health isn't really um, the topic of conversation, right? It's usually met with, you know, pray it away or, um, you know, it's the work of, you know, the devil. (laughs) And as a Christian, you know, I do believe in the power of prayer, um, but I think it's also important for us to still have these conversations, to talk about mental health, to destigmatize it. Um, and we can do that in the classroom. And some of the practices that we can also incorporate, regardless of discipline, regardless of age, is social emotional learning. Before working as a teacher, within, before I started my teaching career, 
and Ellie was, yeah, I used to work at the Boys and Girls Club as a youth coach, working with elementary school children. And uh, SEL, that was pretty much um, my job. That's pretty much all I did, you know, finding ways, you know, programs that uh, help youth to de-stress, to breathe, to meditate, to build community. Um, you know, a lot of what we're seeing with a lot of these deaths, these young uh, deaths, is that um, it's oftentimes folks who, are, who feel isolated from their community. And so when we bring our youth together, when we give, create space within our classroom, within our school spaces, um, for us to talk about mental health, for us to meditate and, um, and tap into our emotions and reflect and do all the various activities that can be done to boost uh, emotional health, uh, research shows that these types of practices um, are effective in uh, youth suicide prevention. And yeah, so, I think they're very effective. Yeah. And I do think this idea of more staff, I know countywide and even in the LAUSD, they're struggling to get those mental health workers, those counselors in. I think that's clearly helpful because not just for suicide prevention, for violence prevention, those mm -hmm. counselors are going to know what's going on with a child before a cop will and will be more likely right. to be able to intervene and prevent. I think there's more missing pieces, though. I feel like as a mama, um, the, let me put it this way, the school system can be very carceral in its approach. My child had a friend who actually committed suicide um, mm. during so the course of high school. It's a terrible thing. It's devastating for the family of that child mm. and for all of that child's friends. And I think... Yeah. Part of what I've observed as a mom, a consumer, if you will, of the school system is that some kids may be isolated. Not some, not all of them are though. Some of them are just right. children that are not teacher's favorites that are considered problem children for whatever reason. Maybe they're too bright. Maybe they're too curious. Maybe they're rebellious. Perhaps they're... I think more likely to be black boys. Um, this LA Times article revealed something I did not know, which is that now in California, Asian and black children have surpassed white kids in suicide. That's startling yeah. because European American children have always been the ones that are taking their own lives at higher numbers. Not saying that's good. It's terrible. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that this is the first time we're seeing this with black and Asian children uh, going at higher rates. And I just think that this is something we've got to look at in terms of the business model, if you will, or the pedagogical model, certainly the disciplinary practices of our schools. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you brought up you brought that up in terms of the way the model of schooling that is really um, I feel mainstream. Um, you know, the school to prison pipeline is so real. You know, as um, a black you know person myself who grew up within uh, the public K through twelve education system, um, like I was, I've been suspended. I you know when I was elementary school several times. Um, you know, last wow. year after. 
Right. I was actually going to ask my father, you know, who, um, was deported. And, you know, and that resulted in me acting certain ways. Um, but it was because of how I was angry. You know, I was depressed. I was stressed. And didn't know where to edit out. And there was no one, I feel, at my school that was there to wrap their, own, their arms around me, to create that space for me to um, decompress and um, find healing. And what we see um, throughout uh, the education system is, um, you know, you know, yes, you know, there are teachers who who do uh, discipline. Your schools who do discipline um, disproportionately are Black and Brown youth. And um, and there's a book by Bettina Love called "Punish for Dreaming." Just recently came out about how school reform harms Black children and how we heal. And you know, she talks about um, just countless stories. Um, not just uh, Gen Z uh, youth, but youth, Black youth from previous generations who come up through an education system with teachers. I mean, I'm laughing because I was that girl. You right. talk too much. Why do you talk so much? Mm, here I am making right. a living talking, you know. Right. It's, it's a criminalization. It's a demonization. Yes. It's the assumption before you even answer, of failure. Before you even say anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do we address that? So one of the ways we address this is by, um, you know, um, training teachers in a way that is anti-racist. Like it really starts from anti-racist abolitionist education. Like we really yeah. have to unlearn and unpack a lot of these uh, stereotypes, a lot of these biases, and we need to help educators and other professionals to really um, uh, see our youth in their full humanity. Um, and I think with the ethnic studies uh, pedagogy, it's not just a uh, content, uh, and it's not just uh, a class, but this, this, it's a practice. You know, this can be, an ethnic studies lens can be employed in all subjects, math, science, et cetera, because it's not just about, you know, what we're teaching, but also like how we teach our youth. And, you know, like ethnic studies, you know, it's built off of the work self, you know, Paulo Freire, who talked about um, the facilitator approach to teaching, where instead of the teacher acting like the sole authority, right, everyone else has to basically obey totally, that's actually a facilitator approach where we're co-creating learning together. And that requires giving space and giving power to youth. And so when you do that, you know, I find it, much more difficult um, to continue to hold onto, um, you know, these racist mindsets. Um, yeah. Otherwise, you know, <laughs> you got to find another job. Um, right? So We're talking. So Go ahead. Yeah, so the pedagogy that we use, um, it matters. So, and I think ethnic studies gives us a, a model of how we do that. And so I think it's that, I think it's BSAP for having more, uh, trauma-informed professionals on our campuses, not just working with our youth, but also working with um, uh, faculty on creating plans as to how we can better support our students. I think that's really important. But of course, that also means the district has to put money where their mouth is. They care about racial justice. They say they care about equity and all these things. Then they need to put some money where their mouth is and hire, you know, some professionals. Yeah. 
Brian Odega is my guest, and you're welcome in. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. He's reclaiming her time on KBLA Talk 1580. More First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. The conversation continues right now, right now, right now with right now. Dominique DePrima on First Things First. first. Things first. Yes, indeed, it does. Talking with Bryant Odega nationwide, we have a shortage, not just of mental health professionals, but also of black teachers, particularly black men, young ones, especially you being one of those now out of the classroom and into the classroom at Harvard. (laughs) And we know you'll return. But what will it take to get more young black people of your generation. I mean, you're Gen Z. We'd take millennials. We'd take Gen X. Anyone, really. It seems like that's an important piece, whether it's academic success or whether it is suicide prevention. Um, What will it take to get more black teachers pipeline? Yeah, you know, the uh, teacher shortage particularly the shortage of teachers of color and particularly black teachers is so real and it's been a longstanding issue. Um, you know, in Bettina Love's book, uh, Punish for Dreaming, she talks about um, how um, with uh, post-Brown versus Board of, uh, Board of Education and how the impacts of um, uh, integrating schools and pushing out uh, black teachers and putting up barriers like these uh, tests and um, all these uh, different requirements um, and so much more have led to a decline in black teachers entering the profession. But definitely one major issue, um, like still like today, is like cost of education, right? So it is uh, an economic and racial justice issue, this issue of student loan debt. Um, you know, as black students, you know, I'm a first-gen uh, college student myself. When we go to college, you know, um, the commitments that we have into our families does not end the minute we enter that dorm, that dormitory. You know, I've been working part-time since I was in high school. And I continued working throughout, even now, throughout my whole entire college career because the lived realities of being Black and also being a Black working class is so real. And so, and the same thing is true for middle-class Black students as well. You know, supporting family while in college, that creates that contributes to the financial burdens that we have with the increasing cost of college. You know, it is not really incentivizing. And it's kind of funny saying this as someone who is still pursuing this career, because it is a calling, and I'm, you know, proud to be a teacher. But, you know, you're going to college, you're paying a lot of money and doing all these things. And then the teaching salary is so much less than your peers with similar education levels. Mm. And so it's not a huge incentive. But then you also have the issue of... I mean, it's, it's really hard for me to get my, my mind around that, Bryant. I hear that all mm-hmm. the time, that teachers aren't paid well. But I look at the UTLA contract, they make, I don't know, the, the pay, the benefits, seems pretty good to me. Maybe I'm missing something. Uh, sure, the teacher salary, um, that was one um, as a result of... Um, the, the huge strike that UCLA had in solidarity with uh, SAU Local 99 and how these um, agreements uh, were huge 
a boost to a status compared to where we were before. And I think and and I course, don't take that for granted. It's not the same in every state, obviously. Right. Because in Boston, I believe it's a bit higher as well. Um, but you know, I don't want to take, take that for granted. Yeah. Right. Some are lower. Um, but the cost of living keeps going up each year. And um, as a black person trying to enter this profession, you know, I'm looking at, um, you know, I don't have um, generational wealth to help right. Um, alleviate, right, you know, the, the debt that I have. And it's, and it's a bit less compared to other folks that I did go to community college. And I'm very proud mm. um, of that. So shout out to El Camino. Um, you know, it is still like real. Uh, I'm coming back still, you know, to support my mom, my sister's in college herself, you know, to support her. And, you know, I'm like looking at after um, my uh, budgeting is done, looking at what's left for me. And it's not that much, to be honest. And if I'm going to mm. start building a family, you know, it even poses more questions. And so, um, so I think, you know, um, increasing wage for teachers, not just in L.A., but statewide. I know there's some bills that's being out there. I think Alan Marisucci, uh sponsored a bill uh, in the state assembly um, for um, increased teacher salary. Uh, there's efforts, but we need things to happen uh, much sooner because um, we are still facing a shortage, especially in uh, low-income neighborhoods. Um, and then in terms of why Black teachers aren't as uh, representative, right? There's less than 7% uh, teachers in the U.S. that are Black, less than 2% that are Black men. You know, there's also still some of that trauma that we've had as Black youth. You know, why enter, why come back to an education system that cause so much traumas. Yeah, yes. that makes sense. And, and so, hey, a lot I of stuff so we're going to start. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, so I'll just quickly say, I also start in like right now, like high school, how we, uh, and, and K through 12, how we treat and support our black students. Um, you know, if we create uh, an, envir- an educational environment of love, of care, um, then that further, then that is only a benefit into encouraging more uh, Black students and students of color to enter teaching profession. A couple of huge, huge stories that, uh, three actually, at least three, that we need to quickly weigh in on. Perhaps Congresswoman Waters will want to speak to them. Um, The death of Henry Kissinger, the former Mm. Secretary of State, who the Huffington Post calls America's most notorious war criminal, dying at the age of 100, uh, is a huge story. And there are many reasons why they call him a war criminal. The more mainstream press outlets like uh, CNN call him controversial. Well, the overturning of a democratically elected uh, government in Chile, his role in the Vietnam War, and the bombing in Cambodia, even though they weren't a party to the war, they were supposedly neutral, um, arms sales to Pakistan, and on and on it goes. Uh, I think controversial light uh, as a description for the former Secretary of State, and I always wondered why he continued to be embraced by generations of politicians, given what we know 
in hindsight about the things that he did. In fact, um, Barack Obama was the one who gave him, uh, well, the Obama administration gave him the Distinguished Public Service Award, the highest honor that the Pentagon can give to a civilian, even just months after Obama apologized for the U.S.'s role in the Argentina debacle, which Kissinger was the architect of our human rights uh, atrocities that happened in, in Argentina under the leadership of Kissinger. Get your thoughts on that when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. A safe place to go loud. 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 A great place for progressive politics. KBLA Talk 1580. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where everybody is somebody and nobody is a stranger. You belong here. And that definitely applies to you, Brian Odega, whether you're on the East Coast going to Harvard or... In San Pedro, teaching high school kids in LAUSD, you belong at KBLA Talk 1580. We've missed you. It's great to hear your voice. Before we lose any more time, I want to go right to Fahima calling us from Washington, D.C. Dominique, and greetings to your guest, who I have a question for. Uh, but first, I wanted to say that the issue with the suicide among young people uh when to be particularly higher when they're in school has a lot to do to a lack of support. You may recall in um, Chicago when they had the last teacher strike, it was due in large part to Ron Emanuel having previously closed many of the mental health uh, facilities in the community and the ratio of psychologists and social workers to the schools, you know, was very vast. You had some um, uh, mental health practitioners that were assigned to two schools simultaneously, and we've right. all heard we've all heard tales of um, young people who may be presenting different, being bullied by their peer group. So that has a lot to do with, with it. Now, but they do, but they're also bullied by their teachers. I want to point that out. It's not just the peer group. I've watched it with my own eyes. You know, I'm not disputing that, but I'm saying these are contributing factors. Because For sure. if, you're being, if you're being bullied by your teacher and there isn't a social worker or a mental health person to speak to that about, you know, they've dropped the ball. Um, yeah. And, of course, you shouldn't be bullying the students. Um, my question um, to, to your guest, um, oh, what's his name again? I'm sorry. Bryant Odega. Yes, Brother Odega. Um, I know you mentioned you were going to get a master's, another master's, considering getting another master's in um, Pan-African Studies. But I, I would ask you, why not a Ph.D. just opposed to a second master's? Um, because I know that there, prior to this onslaught on diversity, equity, inclusion, there were lots of funding uh, for graduate studies in cultural studies, um, in uh, Pan-African studies, et cetera. So why are you doing another master's juxtaposed to doing a PhD? Bryant, and we can call you Dr. Odega. <laughs> um, yeah, I really appreciate that. You know, I, I, you know, I have been uh, weighing uh, that option. 
I do plan on getting a doctorate in education. The reason why right now I am leaning towards getting the second master's and an EDD afterwards is because um, I really don't want to uh, leave the classroom um, for school again. Um, because at least with the PhD programs that I'm aware of in LA, uh, I probably need to do some more research, but at least in the ones I've seen, like at UCLA and SC and others, um, it's a full-time uh, program, which means I would have to leave my job as a full-time teacher to do my doctoral studies. And so um, as of right now, I'm more inclined to uh, find a program uh, that uh, so that I can do while also full-time teaching. And the second master's um, in Pan-African Studies, um, because um, I also just want to further... Uh, I, I'm also, like, in terms of, like, the research aspect of PhD programs, I'm not too sure yet if I'm um, ready for that. I'm more, I consider myself more of a practitioner, so really, like, on the ground um, and practicing the research that's being done. But as of right now, I'm not too sure if I want to do research yet. Thanks, Fahima. Brent, uh, we just have a couple minutes left, actually. So I'm going to skip over the whole Henry Kissinger conversation unless you have something burning you want to say. I happen to know that you're a climate activist and the COP28 um, climate summit is going on right now. There's been controversy about the leader of that summit being also the chairman of an oil company. Uh, but yet there's hope. Sultan Al-Jabir is his name. But then there's hope that we may see an agreement today on the creation of an international fund to help communities bounce back from climate-driven disasters. Thoughts? Brian? Well, and he deserves... Uh, hello? Yeah, I'm not sure well, if you're you on mute. Okay? I, couldn't. I do now, yes. Okay, so I was saying just real quick on Henry Kissinger. You know, he is a war criminal. His legacy resulted in the millions of deaths and casualties that still felt today. And so full combination um, till infinity. <laughs> and then on uh, COP, COP28 and the uh, infiltration of fossil fuel uh, industries and interests is really um, both disheartening, but also I feel representative of... Um, what we also see, to be honest, in the U.S., where, like, it's, like even when it came to passing the IRA, right, that invested a uh, huge amount in uh, climate justice uh, policies and programs, there was compromises that uh, supported the interests of the fossil fuel industry. And so I think, yes, we need to uh, continue to support, you know, efforts and plans and programs um, internationally and also within the U.S. that uh, supports frontline communities, um, like in Africa, like in Latin America, but also like in South Central LA and Flint, Michigan. Uh, we also need to um, like really like take a you know a, a red line on this fossil fuel uh, business. September was the hottest month on record, right after 85 years of uh, tracking um, temperatures. You now we were close. To like 1.5 uh, Celsius um, or so. Um, and the more closer we get to that, the longer we get closer to that, uh, the more devastation we have for our planet. And so, and we know that fossil fuel production is the biggest contributor to this 
I mean, that the U.S. is a huge um, uh, contributor to this as well, yeah. as well as in China as well. And so, well, Brian, you're going to have um, to come back, and we're going to have to do a deep dive on some of the climate stuff because I know this is something you put a lot of work into as well. For now, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And please uh, send my best regards to Auntie Maxine.